It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's Monday the 27th of November from Tortoise. Welcome to the news meeting. Free again. 14 Israeli hostages released by Hamas head home after their long ordeal. Hamas has said it would be open to extending the ceasefire with Israel beyond today, its fourth and final day. Zealand's newly formed coalition government's made its first move. It's axing its world-leading smoking ban to fund tax cuts. The government and the British Medical Association have agreed a deal in principle to end strike action by consultants in England. The wonky tree is creating controversy among residents. It's unique. Does it look Christmassy to you? It doesn't look Christmassy to me. I'm joined by Tortoise's deputy editor, Charles Wattel. Hello. And by Chloe Hadjimatheo. Hello, Chloe. Hiya. And also by David Aronovich. We used to work together at The Times. He has a substack called Notes from the Underground and, excitingly for us, has spent weeks in this podcast studio putting together a series on what the hell happened inside Labour called Eight Years Hard Labour. Tell us the arc of it. Well, the arc of it really is Keir Starmer, um, I think most people agree, is in with a very good chance of winning the next election. Um, And it's a completely remarkable journey for the Labour Party, which I think we could have, we we, we could say was completely written off after the 2019 election. So disastrous was it. And what it marks is a kind of double revolution within one party within a very short period of time and a double capture. First, the party is remarkably captured by Jeremy Corbyn, who no one thought could ever win, uh, and uh, and and the left, far left of the party, and then after 2019, completely taken back. Um, you could argue by Keir Starmer, who people have, I would argue, serially underestimated for the course of the last three years. And does that Corbynite wing of the party come back if and when they win? Uh, no, I mean, what's uh, I would. And this is a this is a subject for a, a very big discussion. Really, the big problem for Labour, I don't think, will be some kind of return of the left far left. I don't think that's likely to happen. I think much more likely that the problems that Labour will face in managing an economy which is in significant decline will be what happens when the if the Conservatives are captured by the far right. Go on. Well, I mean, one of the big reasons why you have the present um, uh, argument between, say, Suella Braverman and Rishi Sune is an argument over, essentially from her point of view and a lot of people's point of view, over the kind of leadership the Conservatives will offer after defeat. Um, And it is after defeat that right-wing populism really has a chance. It has no chance at the moment uh, and is very and, and, and actually is helping drag the Conservative Party down, I would argue. Um, but after the election, let's say three years in, if things aren't significantly improved and it will be difficult for them to be, there comes a much easier place for the right to be. And at that point, the right of politics and the far right of politics can coalesce. And we've seen that happen in a number of places. I'm not saying it will happen like that. 
but it could. I've listened, I have to confess, to the first half of it, and I come away struck, David, by the fact these people aren't people. The way in which they interact, their versions of friendship or their versions of loyalty shift so fundamentally when the political ground changes. It's, it's also an amazing reminder of things that happened literally just over our shoulder and just seem inconceivable now. All right, let's get into this week's news. Uh, Chloe, what's your long story short? It is the hostage and prisoner exchange between Israel and Hamas. Um, it's, you know, the immediate human story, but then also the bigger question of whether this ceasefire and the fact that actually the Israeli government and Hamas are negotiating and actually reaching agreements. Is it a stepping stone in the conflict? And if it isn't, shouldn't it be? Charles, what do you want to do? Lost marbles, like cutting the Mona Lisa in half. David. Uh, I want to talk about Lee Anderson being offered a large amount of money, maybe, to join the Reform Party. <laughs> the thing about that maybe is it's not that Lee Anderson didn't say it. It's whether or not it happened. Yeah. yeah. Let's come back to that in a moment. Chloe, let's talk. Can you just – we're recording this Monday morning, 27th of November. So just catch us up. Where are we? So we're into the last 24 hours of this four-day ceasefire. It can be extended – that's still up for grabs. We don't know yet. And just to give you a brief reminder, the deal was the fighting stops in exchange for humanitarian assistance and aid to get through, but also for Hamas to release up to 50 children and women who were hostages that were taken on October uh, the 7th, and that the Israeli government will release up to 150 Palestinian prisoners. That's three times more Palestinian prisoners, women and children prisoners. So just to give you a sense of this, Hamas claims to be holding, has released a list of 220 hostages, it says it took on October 7th. There are more than that. There are at least 15, possibly 20 more hostages that are being held by Islamic Jihad and other groups, could be criminal gangs, we don't know. There are missing people that are not on that list. So the idea that this is going to be, uh, you know, the end of the hostages all coming into Israel, that's even if this is extended, it's unlikely to happen all in one go now. And there's one element to this which has come from the Qataris saying that Hamas does not necessarily know exactly where all the hostages are. Is no, that right? No, it doesn't. But the international community considers it Hamas's responsibility. Hamas opened the floodgates. These hostages came in to Gaza because Hamas breached the wall into Israel. So, but, but Hamas doesn't have utter control. There are so many different militant groups in uh, Gaza, operating in Gaza. And so it's unlikely that Hamas knows where all these hostages are. I don't understand that because I can't believe that an operation that was as closely held as the 7th of October wasn't controlled by Hamas. It's not as though Palestinian Jihad could have suddenly seen the breach in the wall and thought, OK, we'll go out and get hostages. I think that's exactly what happened. Really? Yes. I think when you watch the videos, there were hours of people coming across. There were young Palestinian men who woke up that morning, realised what was happening, got dressed, got their mates and crossed over. But then why would they have taken hostages? That has to be a plan. Not necessarily. They see other people doing it. Why not, you know, do it as well? And if they're on their mobile phones and they're part of some group or loosely, loosely affiliated to some group. It could even just be that their uncle knows what to do and they've called up and said, look, we can make some money, grab somebody. It's, I mean, who knows? So let's go back to your point, though, stepping stone. Mm. On what grounds do you think these negotiations are a stepping stone to bigger, longer lasting ones? 
So I, before we get to that, I just want to talk about the flip side of this, which I think is really important here, which is the prisoners, because we haven't really talked very much about the prisoner stats. And I think that that's quite incredible as well. In the summer, before October 7th, Israel was holding um, around 5,000 prisoners in its jails. Some of those, about 20% of them, had not had any charges laid against them. This is administrative detention. So these are these are people just being held without charges. Israel says it has to do this for its national security. The Palestinians obviously massively aggrieved by this. A lot of those are underage. So they're considered by the UN to be children because they're under the age of 18. Since October the 7th, another 3,000 Palestinians have been arrested. So now there's eight thousand Palestinians being held in jails. And we're looking at a swap of one to three, one hostage for three of these prisoners. There's a legacy of these kinds of deals going on. And the last massive one that I remember was in 2011, when uh, an Israeli soldier had been kidnapped and held in Gaza, uh, Gilad Shalit. He was held for a very long time. And eventually, when the deal was done, for that one soldier... Israel released a thousand prisoners. Among them was Yahya Sinwar, who is now the head of uh, Hamas in Gaza and who is one of the masterminds behind this plan. So there's this sense of this, you know, vicious cycle and circle that keeps going on. Who knows who is among these prisoners that are being released now? Where does this go in the future? And the question is, is this an opportunity now to break that cycle? David, what do you think about this exchange rate? Um, narrative, the one to three, one to 1,000, the way in which this thing gets framed? I think it's catastrophic. I mean, I think it's, but it's always been catastrophic. The Shalit, looking back on it, for the very reasons that Claire's been talking about, uh, the Shalit uh, exchange was absolutely catastrophic for for Israel, though you can completely understand why people do it. Um, From anybody without necessarily a kind of significant knowledge of uh, of the dynamics of the area, looking at the idea of this exchange of thousands of prisoners for uh, uh, dozens of hostages, it creates a kind of fake e- equality um, in what's going on, which completely muddies the, uh, the pe- people's understanding of the situation, but however, does create a new understanding of the situation, which is, say, what goes on day in, day out on the West Bank. Um, and the various kind of components of the incapacity to create the conditions for any kind of peace discussion or or long-term settlement, which is essentially the pattern that we've been seeing for the last 20 years. So, so Claude, do that part of it. Why do you think there is the possibility of some longer-term negotiation? So since October 7th, Israel has been adamant that it's primary goal, apart from getting back these hostages, is the end of Hamas, obliterating Hamas. The question is, is that possible? And even if it is possible, what are we left with? What we've had until now that's brought us to this point uh, is a leadership on the Israeli side and a leadership on the Gazan side, which has made it utterly impossible for any kind of deal to be struck. Neither side wanted a deal. That's the truth. And now we're in a situation where we might be seeing the end of this potentially this Israeli government and possibly the end of this potent, uh, this Palestinian leadership in Gaza. What we do have are parties that are helping bring these two sides together in Qatar, in Egypt, and who are brokering some kind of negotiation. So I don't understand that. I understand the 
instability of the Israeli side, I would have thought this deal cements the political authority of the Hamas side. Was that wrong? Well, I mean, it does increase their popularity among some people. But I believe, and I've I've heard from lots of people inside Gaza, that there's a lot of anger. The, the suffering has been on such an unprecedented, immense scale in Gaza that I think it's going to be very, very hard if there was an election tomorrow for Hamas to win again. I can't believe that the Gazan people have seen this in a positive light. Charles, what do you want to know? End of day four of this pause. What do you want to know now? Well, first of all, whether it continues as per the original small print, whereby it can extend a day at a time if more batches are released. But also... To your point, uh, Chloe, about pressure on Hamas inside as a result of the suffering, the mirror of that uh, in Israel, it's it's very striking the extent to which these exchanges are only happening at all because of internal pressure on Netanyahu. And I was struck by a, a substack I read over the weekend arguing very strongly that this was a catastrophic deal long term for Israel because the only way... Uh, Netanyahu could make good, the argument ran, on his pledge to get them all back was to insist no ceasefire until they are all released. Uh, That has not happened, arguably because of pressure from the US. And so he has conceded the principle of bartering. All right. I suspect, Chloe, we're going to be at the end of this week and this story is still going to probably be leading the news and its, its consequences for the Israeli military strategy for the prospect of a more meaningful and longer term negotiation. But let's leave it there for the time being. I'm going to go to David next. Lee Anderson. Yeah, I, um, uh, Chloe is, is undoubtedly the story of the week. And I think Charles and I will concede that uh, readily. <laughs> Never. Um, uh, we'll concede, In other news, we'll these guys. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things which is uh, the reason why I've chosen the Lee Anderson story is not just the story in itself, but what it, if you like, what it represents about uh, uh, our current politics. Just give us a new reader's start here. Um, so a new reader's start here is um, the incredibly, I say the word kind of controversial, but I suppose if you know that, he, that Lee Anderson, the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, sits for one of the red wall seats, is a former minor and former Labour Party member who has moved himself significantly to the right wing of the Conservative Party, where he operates the kind of anti-woke, anti-migrant side of the Rishi Sunak appeal. So you have nice technocratic Rishi on this one side kind of looking, you know, looking at you saying business, great, etc. And then on the other side, you have the other side saying get the migrants out and so on. Um, uh, Anderson represents uh, that side. And he enjoys himself an enormous amount to the extent that GB News have uh, uh, employ him as a presenter. Um, And it was recorded, the Sunday Times had a story in which he was recorded telling, I think, some conservative group in Cambridgeshire uh, at the, you know, this is what's going to happen at the point where he says, I hope no one's taping this, um, uh, where he says, um, a party that began with R offered him a substantial sum of money to defect from the Conservative Party and become one of their MPs. So this becomes the story. And Anderson then uh, subsequently clarifies what he was offered 
was five years MP's salary because even the R party, whichever R party it was, we'll come back to it in a moment, recognised that they were unlikely to get him into Parliament on their own uh, on their own steam. So they offered him five years salary plus one or two other kind of bits and bobs. I guess some sort of not un- con- uh, uh, unadjacent to about four hundred fifty thousand pounds to join the to join the R party. Now everybody has speculated the R party is not the reclaim party of Lawrence Fox, <laughs> uh, former actor uh, uh, and oh, sat GP News GB News presenter, um, but the party of Richard Tice, who I think is a regular talk TV um, and GB News performer. Um, uh, It was the Brexit party of Nigel Farage. Tice has since said, it wasn't us, Gov. We didn't do it. We wouldn't do such a a terrible thing. Now, what I'm not clear about is whether or not it's legal to do such a thing. (laughs) And uh, I mean, I don't think there's actually any law against it, but apparently the Speaker of the House is investigating it because you could argue that it's an attempt to suborn a member of Parliament, although I'm not totally sure what our regulations uh, are here. But the reason why I think it's interesting, and I'll be very brief about this because I've been so long-winded about the rest... (laughs) The reason why I think it's interesting is because a lot, of, quite a lot of Tories are seriously worried, I think wrongly, about what they're going to lose off to the Reform Party unless they become more and more right wing. So without the kind of, so they, without learning the lesson of Mark Rutter from the Netherlands, which is the more you cosy up to that side, the worse it gets for you. They think that the way to go for Rishi Sunak is to lean in the Anderson direction to siphon votes off something like reform. And that's what that represents. And this also comes in the week uh, that the Telegraph runs the story of what was in the supposed agreement that Suella Braverman had with Rishi Sunak on how to stop migrants coming. Can we just talk about the Reform Party? I have to say my favourite detail in this story was that this... Uh, instant happened at a Lagers with Lee evening, right? Not Lager with Lee, Lagers with Lee. We're going to get really stuck in, I suspect, at a Lagers with Lee night. No one's taping this. (laughs) But but, uh, strangely, I read that story yesterday, David, while I was catching up listening to John Curtis and Rachel Wolfe's podcast, Trendy. And there's a really interesting thing. They were looking at the gap between Labour and Tories now, 20-point gap. But the most interesting thing John Curtis said, at least to me, was that the Tory vote, Conservative voters and their commitment around Brexit had just collapsed. So only 48% of people who were Conservative voters were now looking to the Tories to deliver on Brexit, i.e. that core of the coalition that Boris Johnson had built and led to the 2019 majority had just disappeared. And then thinking about the reform challenge, they only need to chip away four, five, six, eight points. And the conservative dreams of even holding on to a modest defeat, right, collapse. So the Lee Anson threat, you know, it's a Lagers with Lee story, but it's a colossal Rishi Sunak headache, isn't it? Uh, It is, but uh, it is in one way. I mean, the obvious thing to point out is that the Tories have lost more votes off to the other side. And to so it, to, to, to the centre, to the centre, if you like, and to, and to parties to their centre, that's quite clear um, in the in the polling. So, the, so parties of the centre and centre left currently poll up to about 64 percent, 
and reform poll between four and eight percent. Now, if you want to hold on to an election, which time, which way should you direct your attempt to try and uh, get votes? Um, it's pretty obvious. So there's a there's actually um, th- there's a mirage in all this. There are maybe one or t- a few conservative seats where if you were to pull two percent back from um, reform, and incidentally, Rishi Sunak is not the person to do that because quite often parties are embodied within their leaderships. Anderson doesn't leave the Conservative Party. Um, I'm not at all sure, by the way, that the Reform Party has 600 candidates. Um, You know, they won't give their membership figures. They keep on saying they've doubled, but they don't say what they've doubled from and to. Uh, um, uh, And when they do start running their candidates, my God, some of the histories that are going to come out. Charles, what do you think of this Leanderson story? This goes back to the referendum. The whole point of this eight-year experiment has been, because it, it's, it's not, its purpose has never been to, to help the country, has been to somehow lance the boil of Europe on the right and provide, create a new platform for unity on the right. And it just hasn't worked. You know, Cameron's project was a referendum to win it and neutralise the whole idea. He lost it. The point of Brexit was then to unify the right. That failed. The point of hard Brexit was, all right, let's throw you another bone. Can we u- unite around that? That hasn't worked. And, and now we have the prospect of, of imminent electoral defeat. And I think it's very interesting because it, it does suggest that um, we'll have two parties on the right. We'll have, we'll have a rump Tory party and, a, and an AFD equivalent. I think what I'd really like is to work out what a series of drinks with different politicians would look like. You know, what you get, like Sherry with Suella or Ribena with Rishi. I don't know what your drinks parties, like lagers with Lee, that I would like your advice on. What a <laughs> series of different I'm nights so in absolutely drinking. absolutely notorious in my family for hardly drinking at all. <laughs> the last person to come to. All right, let's take a beat here and then let's come to the marbles. Giles, the marbles are going home. The marbles are not yet going home, but... Curiosity- just, just tell exactly what's been decided, because I, I haven't read myself in on this. Nothing's been decided, but the story is the Greek Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, is in town. He's talking to Keir Starmer today, and he's talking to Rishi Sunak tomorrow, and he will say, please, can we have them back? And they will both say, no, the law forbids us. And they are both wrong. The law does not forbid... Um, the British government or the trustees of the British Museum from uh, returning the uh, Parthenon sculptures, as they're correctly known, to Greece. The relevant bit of the British Museum Act 1963 is in paragraph 5. I shall read it. It's very short. The trustees of the British Museum may sell, exchange, give away, or otherwise dispose of any object vested in them and comprised in their collection if, and then there's a couple of subordinate clauses, And the one that counts is, in the opinion of the trustees, the object is unfit to be retained in the collections of the museum and can be disposed of without detriment to the interests of students. There is a reason, I'll keep this short because I boil over, even though there are more serious stories in the world, um, the reason that successive governments have been able to hide behind the law so far as a reason not to return the marbles is a 2005 ruling by a gentleman called Sir Andrew Porritt, who was then vice-chancellor. 
That was his title, Vice-Chancellor. Don't ask what of, because there was no, nothing else to the title. It was a pure Jarndyce and Jarndyce appointment. <laughs> and uh, he ruled that not that the British Museums Act, part of which, the key part of which I have just read to you, did not even allow for the return of Nazi loot for draw, old master drawings stolen by the Gestapo from the Feldman family in Brno in 1942 or 44, I forget which. It did not even allow for that. He said there could be subsequent legislation, and there was in 2009, and the drawings were eventually returned. But that amendment to the British Museums Act expired in 2019. So uh, we are left with a government that says we cannot uh, return these sculptures because of the law, despite what the law says, and despite the fact that we have already shown that we can amend the law. All, all, all we need is the will. But can I just ask you something? I totally get all of that. But haven't the trustees of the British Museum and George Osborne, the chair, done what Brits do when facing a choice and not made it? Haven't we delivered a perfect box of fudge to Mitsotakis, which is we're going to send the marbles back on loan. They're then going to be there in return for other bits and bobs. And over time, it's just going to become a fact on the ground that the marbles are back in Greece. Uh, that it, it that is what we are led to believe. Uh, it hasn't been announced yet. Um, the loan, and I'm going to quote uh, Jeffrey Robertson QC on this: the idea of a loan has the insulting consequence that possession all will always reside with the nation that dispossessed them. That is the marbles. It reduces the guilt now felt by the thief, but does not assuage the feelings of the victim, as yeah, the prime minister well, has like made a very lot of clear. Jeffrey Robertson stuff. That's an over, overblown guff. The, the, I mean, uh, yeah, don't you think the, the, seriously, seriously, the law, I mean, Giles, you've decided to go out on the law and it is irritating when governments invoke the law in this way. Um, but actually, the big problem with uh, the return uh, of the marbles is that they actually diminish the collection at the British Museum, which I would argue is as important an artifact in itself as the Parthenon is. Do you um, really think that, David? Do you oh, think there's no, a load of stuff in I, the cellar they can't get out there and no, 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 give no, a chance to see those things? No, no, that, that's true too. But, uh, uh, and uh, quite a lot of that stuff is available through scholarship and quite a lot of that stuff is lent out and quite a lot of that stuff maybe shouldn't be in the cellars. But that's not really, that's not really the point. The point is whether this fantastic collection in London which is free to anyone to come and see and to experience, etc., is in itself a significant artefact. And that's the thing which always gets lost from this. So in other words, I'm opposing Giles not on the question of the law, because the law can be changed, but on the question of principle. One, they were not stolen. They were totally stolen. No, they were, they were absolutely oh not. They were absolutely not stolen. And though the Greek government uses those words, there's no kind of legal restitution it has. And if Frankly, if you begin that kind of restitution anyway, although they weren't plundered, then in that case, the lions of St. Mark are going to have to go back to Constantinople. From Send where, them back. Where they should no. back, of course. Uh, the no, British no, no, Museum will of course, And the Rosetta Stone goes off to Egypt. And Absolutely. Where is exactly, exactly, need exactly, to go exactly. back. And of course, they do not belong in these places. Do you happen to know, Giles, where by far and away the best collection of British art and artwork uh, from the 18th and 19th centuries is? No, no, you haven't. The Might faintest. be in the Met. I you don't know. No, it's not in the Met. It is in Yale. It's actually in Yale. How are you going to lead a campaign for the restitution of British art to Britain? Not we, if they bought we... them as they likely did from hard-up British families. No, no, no families. that's not the point. You it is about, the no, point. It isn't. Show me the firm. Charles, you're talking. You were talking there is no firm. About... 
There's an Italian translation which is not even a firman. It so was it was theft. So yeah. this the, the whole for, for the listeners who won't understand the background to this, those marbles were part of the Parthenon. Lord Elgin went during the Ottoman occupation of Greece and according to him got this firman, this notice from the occupying entity, the Ottomans, who didn't own the Parthenon in the first place, that he had permission to take these down. That letter which gives him the legal right, supposedly, uh, that's also arguable, but would have given him the legal right to, to take down these marbles, that has never been presented. It doesn't exist. If it existed, the British government would have produced it a very long time ago. So the whole case on the legality of Britain having these marbles in the first place rests on a document that has never, ever been produced. Lord Elgin, at the time that he was cutting these marbles down, broke and destroyed huge pieces of the Parthenon in 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 his uh, attempt to get these down apparently he was he had requested uh, access to the Parthenon for research purposes and David doesn't your argument which is the British Museum is itself an artifact yeah. is itself a collection which is worthy of keeping rest on the idea that in practice, it's become a thing. And yeah. by returning the marbles on loan, in practice, they return oh, oh, oh. and it's a thing. The and the reality is that all of these fine points of history and law don't matter quite as much as where the things actually the loan, are. The, the, yeah, as a, 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 absolutely, absolutely. The loan is another matter altogether. Um, a the good British, thing or bad the, thing? The, the, just as, the British Museum is going to have to be completely redeveloped because large parts of it are falling down. The Duveen Gallery, in which they held the trustees' uh, dinner, where I was the other day, not because I'm a trustee, but because I'm actually one of these people who's actually a friend of the British Museum as opposed to being an enemy of it, uh, etc., is a gallery created in 1936. It's all wrong. So when they redevelop, they are going to completely redevelop the context within which they, do, they uh, present any one of these, any of these artefacts. I think that they were thinking about whether or not they could get the Greek government to agree to a loan during the course of the redevelopment, and then after that you see what would happen. But for precisely the reasons that we, that we were just given, which is that supposedly it's such a terrible insult to loan something back, although things are loaned all over the place at the moment, and actually that's how all the kind of, a lot of the great things in museums are happening. Because that's such a great insult, and the Greek government therefore won't agree to having them returned, uh, and so on, then in that case that loan is very unlikely to happen. One final point on replica. If replicas are so wonderful, Giles, why don't they just stick the replicas of the marbles into the slots in the Acropolis Museum where they have kept deliberately gaps in order to be able to convince the visitor that the British Museum should return the Go marbles? On, I feel qualified to answer this as a Greek <laughs> because there's an emotional attachment. And actually, I would argue... I would argue, I don't know whether you've been to the Acropolis Museum in Athens, which is absolutely magnificent. If you haven't, I really recommend it. It's this incredible glass building at the very top of which are the Parthenon marbles that that Greece does have with these gaps where the missing pieces are in the British Museum. So why and you see that? them, you see them in context with the Acropolis through the window. It's just an amazing experience. There's an emotional connection. These are ancient artifacts. C can I just ask you one thing though? This is David. my story. Go on. You go <laughs> back to my him. story. This is my story, but you can go back to David. No, no, I want to go back to David about one thing, which is his point about saying, because I'm an actual friend of the British Museum. Mm. Do you think it's possible to be in favour of the return of the marbles 
and a friend of the British Museum. I know. Look, there are a lot of people who I really respect who are either agnostic or think that the argument has become so freighted that it, what would we maybe in the end lose, providing that we get loans back from Greece to go in the British Museum, which are kind of equivalent to the loss that would be suffered. But what I would say, and I feel just as strongly about this as Giles does, actually, uh, what I would say is I think people are incredibly cavalier about some of the great institutions in this country, and particularly about its museums. Maybe they were taken there struggling and squalling as kids on wet Saturdays and resented the experience, or maybe not. But but I feel just as strongly as Chloe does uh, in her own way about this, about the value of that museum and the things that are in it. Now, it may be that as we kind of re, we rethink about how museums present things and so on, that the exact ownership and exactly where things does actually become less important. And these arguments die down and so on. That is possible. But what I want to present to the listener here is the value of that institution, which anybody can walk in for free, walk around and look at, and which scholars use all the time at a level. I mean, the Acropolis Museum, I take it, is absolutely marvellous. Everybody I've spoken to says that it is a marvellous museum or that, uh, and, and so on. But it's roughly a quarter of the numbers of people go through the Acropolis Museum as go through the British Museum, and you have to pay. Can, can I ask Chloe and Charles, is there a risk that what you're doing in with a kind of good heart and an openness to change, is walk into a trap that is essentially being set by Rishi Sunak and Esther McVeigh and GB News, which is these people want to dismantle our history and with that, who we are and our place in the world. And if you don't do it in a way that is sensitive and measured, the reaction you get is worse than the progress you make. The British Museum, I was there this weekend, by the way, with my children. I love it. I use it all the time. It's an amazing resource. I think that a lot of the things that we have in it, we could have in it on loan from countries. A lot of the, it, there, there is a legacy in there that we see of British colonialism and theft. And I can't help feeling it when I walk through that museum. I think the British Museum is such an amazing institution that lots and lots of countries would want to display their artefacts there anyway. Take somewhere like Egypt, which has so much stuff. It's sitting in basements under their museums. We could have lots and lots of stuff for free. Just within this discussion, Chloe and Giles have a disagreement. Chloe wants to see the Rosetta Stone. Giles says, return it to where it belongs. This is a Philistine attitude, as far as I'm concerned, straightforward Philistinism, which is you just find out where the place started and you send it back, etc. If anybody wants to look into the complexity of that, they should just look at what is currently happening with what is arguably the easiest moral case, which is the one of the Benin bronzes and the argument that is going about where they will go back to and how they can possibly be displayed. And this is an argument within Nigeria, not an argument that's happening here. With that... What story leads the news, Chloe? I think probably Lee Anderson, just because the marbles is not a done deal. It's not. I would lead on it if it were that the marbles were going back tomorrow. It's still up for discussion. It's a story that isn't moving, however passionately I feel about it. <laughs> I think the Lee Anderson story probably ha tells us a little bit more about the direction of British politics right now. David, hostages and marbles? Well, I can't vote for myself, can I? No, you can't. And I think Giles has put forward an, an impassioned and if legalistic case, and uh, so I vote for him. Giles? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I feel obliged to vote for him. No. Um, uh, the, the hostages. 
it's the story of the the week. Yeah, I mean, I think hostages leads, and I think that the interesting question between Lee Anderson and the marbles is Lee Anderson actually points to something really significant that's going to happen in our politics, but it is a Lagos with Lee story. The marbles, as you say, hasn't happened yet, but it is a weaponization of history and politics story and so much more. Uh, I think I probably would on balance go hostages, marbles, Lee Anderson. With that, Giles Mattel. Thank uh, you. On behalf of the Greek government, thank you for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe Adjumatheou, uh, also on behalf of the Greek government, <laughs> thank you for coming. Um, David, David Ronovich on behalf of the history of British colonialism and imperialism. <laughs> uh, David Ronovich, Chloe Adjumatheou, Charles Patel, thank you very much indeed. We're going to leave you with a clip from David's podcast series, Eight Years Hard Labour. There are moments, David, as I said, that just come back at you and scream back at you at exactly what happened, how bizarre things were. This is a moment where you're catching up with Ben Bradshaw. He was here a few weeks ago. As Ben Bradshaw realises how Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party cost the United Kingdom membership of the European Union. And I, I am still of the view that if Jeremy Corbyn had not been the leader of the Labour Party, we would not have lost the Brexit referendum. If we had had a credible leader who uh, could have articulated a coherent, passionate, labour-based argument for a staying in the European Union, I think we would have won that referendum. Tortoise. 